I'm Lindsay Hotmeyer, and welcome to Storyhouse. This is a podcast about growing your business, but it's also about slowing down the noise so you can give the world the best parts of who you are. So if you've struggled with all the buzz around storytelling only to feel like you don't have a story worth sharing, or if you're tired of being forced on the wheel of marketing that doesn't feel right, but also feels impossible to ignore, then be sure to meet me here every week to hear from real business owners as we dismantle all the should-dos and must-dos of business. Hear how they've wrestled through their own struggles and walk away with strategies that help you authentically and sustainably grow, scale, or pivot the business you've built. Eric White is the co-founder of Ponder, a customer insight studio that delivers insight experiences to help growth stage companies increase win rates and explore new segments. Eric will tell you that one of his biggest beefs with data is that most market research companies just email you reports and give presentations and you're left thinking, wow, that was really cool and that was really interesting, but what the heck do I do now? At Ponder, Eric and his, his teammates produce immersive experiences to help your team immerse into customer needs and allow you to take actual action so that you can achieve your growth objectives. What does all that really mean? It means that Eric is an incredible observer. Actually, he's a Jedi-level listener, and I know this because I've seen him at ground level in the work. He asks the types of questions that pull golden insights out of your audiences so that you can grow intelligently and confidently. In this episode, you're going to hear us talk about how small business owners can gather data without feeling overloaded on time or money. We dig into things like, why is empathy not always a good thing? And we talk about, what does it mean for research and insights to truly be actionable? Now, before you dig in, we we didn't have the sound gods on our side with this episode. It was not a good day for the internet. So you're going to hear a few blips and blurbs. Just know that's on our end, not yours. But this conversation is worth tuning into. I could talk to Eric for days and days and days if he would let me, but unfortunately he has a job to do and he does it really well. So I know you're going to love tuning into this episode. Eric, I'm so excited to dig in and chat with you about all things research, customer insights, and lots of other stuff, lots of nuggets of wisdom that you have to share in between there. So thanks for joining us on the Storyhouse podcast. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's great to get to chat with you too. Yep. So when I first came across you and Ponder, I perked up right away because this is something that I'm passionate about as well. But what is what is unique about you and I think like me intersecting with what you do is that you share a lot of the viewpoints on research and insights that I do. You take you take an approach that isn't always taken in in the research and insights realm. And so before we dig into all the, the juicy parts of the conversation, just talk to us a little bit about Ponder and what it is that, that you guys do there. Sure. So this is my second business that I've that I've launched. Actually my third business, I guess. What we do at Ponder is essentially you would describe it as customer insights work. So I think we're really good at getting people to talk about things that are important to our clients and even things that maybe the the person that we're interviewing didn't themselves even think was interesting. And so there are usually two applications of that. One is we call it win-loss reporting. And so that is when 
you've got some sort of a sales process and you want to understand why and how people are making decisions at certain stages of the buyer's journey. That's one thing that we have, which is I'll call it studying the historical record and figuring out how to debug issues maybe that exist in a marketing and sales and demand generation process. The second thing that we do is we help companies. We usually work with B2B software, B2B service providers, and some really high ticket consumer products. And when you have an offering like that, there's usually some sort of pressure to go out and find growth. What's a new product that we can, what's a new product that we can launch? What's a a new market segment that we can get into? And so we go out and do exploratory research to figure out how how do we make demand where demand doesn't currently exist. What is interesting to me about your work is one of the things, you know, we, when we talked last week or the week before you talked about, sometimes companies will come to you to almost like further test or refine the data that they paid big money for from other companies. Right. And you'll dig in and you'll either show them how, how to make sense of the data or how that data actually isn't applicable. And so one of the things you say on your website, I think it's your website, maybe it's your LinkedIn, is you say that we make research actionable. And so I think that that, you know, as I think about that and back to our conversation with with the big data companies, it can feel really overwhelming. You get reams and reams of data and it's almost like they're trying to impress you with all of their metric smarts and you don't know what to do with it as a company. So you're coming in and helping to make that actionable. And so one, how do you make it actionable? And two, why does it often feel like what we're getting from the big data companies isn't actionable? Why does that even happen, I guess? Yeah, those are great questions. And I will preface this by saying, I think this is going to be my life's work. So I say that only because I don't, I don't know that I have it solved yet, but there are a few things that I've heard and, and learned. And so I think number one, the reason that it's hard to make things actionable is because usually the skills that you need to have to be a good researcher are skills that usually make you not necessarily a good communicator. Right. And so when you need to do research, you're good at going and separating yourself and being unbiased and asking certain kinds of questions and thinking deeply. And and those are all really important things to have. But a lot of times people who are good at those things tend to be a little more introverted and struggle sometimes with communicating. Number one is I think that there's just a communication challenge. And so first of all, getting the data into someone else's mind. It's very easy if you're, you know, as a dad, I've got a kid who's really curious about things. If the kid touches the stove, I don't have to give the kid any data for them to be able to know exactly what they need to not do. (laughs) Right. Like that is a, that is a message that is, that is received. It's not always that way with data and data can be very ambiguous it can lead us to bad conclusions. And so I think the first part of it is just simply understanding how to communicate data in a way that's relevant to some sort of topic that's important to the business. I think that's the first challenge. I think the second challenge then is because sometimes that data can be ambiguous and the implications of it are not always straightforward, then there 
comes this process where debates tend to happen and these debates can become somewhat religious meaning that everyone's coming at it from a different perspective and there's not really a galvanizing force to to make it clear so now you're talking about the third step right there was research there was communication now there's decision making and i think a lot of times by that point so much time has passed between whatever the need was when that research first came up so much time has passed attentions are short you know new business objectives have come up that by the time you get to the decision making part the whole team has run out of steam and have moved on to other things so i think that's i think that's a really big part of the challenge is it's a it's a multi-step process it can take a long time and we run out of steam and just don't follow through yeah that's the first one. that's the first part of your answer well i want to i want to dig in to that for just a minute because yeah. you talk about good research isn't always good communication and that is a good researcher, you know how to set aside your bias and assumptions. But I'm going to push back and say, I don't know that I believe all good researchers do that. And I say that out of my own experience. Like I can remember being on a team where I was hired to just do research. And so I would present it. And then then the people above me would come back and say, hey, Lindsay, can you take out this, this, and this? Because that doesn't support the plan that we're trying to build for our client. And it always ticked me off to no end because obviously we know we're taking out chunks of of valid information can then mislead somebody. And so I guess maybe that means that there's room to talk about how do you as a researcher bracket, put aside those assumptions and biases and present the hard information. I think that's a really interesting situation because that almost sounds to me like you are in a, a difficult political situation. And so I think that there's a certain amount of political capital that as researchers, we need to recognize that we need to have. And so we need to, we need to sometimes have our elbows out and protect our turf a little bit, because I think what you were saying is, that wasn't so much a, a research skill that you were lacking in the situation. It was a it was a complex relational situation that you're in, and we find, you know, of course, all of us as researchers find ourselves in those spots from time to time, and they can be they can be very tricky. And so, I think understanding the politics and being prepared for it, and figuring out how to be a defender of the truth, is a big part of that. And that's a that's a people skill mm -hmm. that is part of being a great researcher. That's a really interesting thing that I had not thought of that. Yeah. And I think part of that comes down to power dynamic too. So let's say a client comes to me and hires me, hey, do this research and I'm the lead on that. And then they push back against something that's presented. At that point, I have no, I have no problem saying I'm not taking this out like the research is the research but when you're down low on the pole absolutely and it's either you take it out because three people above you are going to fire you if you don't then that becomes a different dynamic that you really have to sort through and think like what's really happening here and acknowledging there was always some some pushback on my my own push, pushback like I don't really know the full scope of what's happening here. Maybe there's a sensible reason why this wants to be taken out, but it did always irritate me because it felt very biased and assumption driven. 
Oh, and that's so challenging. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's the caveat to anybody doing research. If you're wanting to take something out because it doesn't confirm your bias or assumption, like that's all the more reason to leave it in or to, to stop and ask yourself, why is this here and what is it telling us? Is it signaling us to go another direction or is it still not valid to, to what we're seeking? Yeah, I think that's a that's a hand on the stove kind of moment also where sometimes we go through things and we experience them and like that doesn't feel good and we're all a part of a value chain. And so as a researcher, yeah, ultimately you have to give the information off to someone you're not the CEO probably. And so it's not your ultimate job to get results from it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think, I, I think the ability as a researcher to be able to study yourself in your own situation and also make those realizations actionable and not, not convince us that we need to give up, but rather convince us that this is the hard, this is a hard part of the research. There's, um, and, and need to figure out how to navigate those situations. Mm-hmm. And I think like, I think the power dynamics thing is really interesting. I have a friend who was a detective and he now does UX research, right? So like really interesting career pivot. Mm-hmm. And so he, and he's very opinionated and he's a fascinating guy. And, you know, you, you, you hear him talk and he's very opinionated about this is, this is the role of research and research needs to drive towards a point of view. And, and he's told me that as he has talked about his thoughts or his ideas about how research as a function should work, he will get pushback. He'll get pushback from women, from people of color, people who feel less secure in the power dynamics of situations where they say, you know, I simply can't do that. And so I'm very sensitive to those. And I think when I was saying this is kind of life's work for me and learning, I think the power dynamics are something that I'm just, I have to be intentionally aware of and recognize that. And I think that's going to be a, an interesting challenge for research as a as a whole to figure out what's our role and how do we navigate those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You talk about that you know that you know one of your greatest strengths is you're a great salesperson, you're a great researcher, you've been in business, multiple businesses enough to not have to second guess that about yourself. You said, but being a highly paid, high leverage consultant requires me to be able to stop asking questions and start giving advice. And so you live in that tension of, this is what I'm brilliant at, here's my genius, now how do I make that profitable essentially that's what you're saying and so how have you moved through that struggle the hardest thing for me about being a guest on a podcast is i want to ask you questions right like your experiences your thoughts on things are far more interesting to me than 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 my own and so when i find myself i I had this situation with the client several years ago where they liked when we were starting out this project, they loved how curious I was about their situation. And I would ask them, you know, well, what's, tell, you know, tell me about this. And we'd get on a 30 minute meeting and they would talk to me about different parts of their business, or they would give me reports to help me understand things. And we started to get into the project and my client, Lauren made this comment. She said, this is starting to be a little bit annoying because I paid you to give me information 
right? So she's like, I didn't pay you to ask questions about us. I didn't pay you to learn about our situation. I know you need to have some of that to be successful, but when is the value and the information going to start flowing towards oh, me? My goodness, were you like, <laughs> how do you recover from such I, a pushback? <laughs> I love, so I personally really like people being really blunt and direct. And I appreciated the, um, I, I appreciated that she was, so effectively able to communicate <laughs> what it is that, that she wanted in that situation. And I will say in that particular project, I did not get it right. I, that was a hard thing to not her statement. Wasn't a hard thing to recover from. It took me a long time to really process and absorb that and figure out what to do about that. And so I say that to say that there are the skills that we have I think it's important for us to double down on them and to be really good at the things that we're good at, but then ultimately to recognize that sometimes the skills that we have, the experiences that we have hold us back in certain ways. And so to me, having a growth mindset is about being clear about our strengths, but then also our strengths sort of act as a, as a magnet and pull us into limiting behaviors almost almost by virtue of their existence. And so, yeah, so being a curious person, liking to ask questions, liking to go deep and ask follow-up questions has value to a certain point, but ultimately it doesn't help if that's not helping me derive insights, communicate them effectively, and then help people take action on them. So yeah. I have to stop asking questions at some point. And I have to start giving back and, and doing. So that's going to loop me back to that first question about research being actionable and why do so many of the big data companies get it wrong? From my my own approach of stepping into narratives with people and digging in to find their research, like such a huge piece of that for me, you know, I say I'm I'm such a qualitative girl, you know, like forget the forget the charts and the pie graphs, somebody else can make those and make sense of them. I I want the story. Do you think that that is the piece that's missing? You know, you said you're so good at stepping in, being curious, having those conversations with people. Is that not happening enough from a big data standpoint that it is causing us to make misinformed decisions because we've taken the human aspect out of it? I was reading about... Was it Anderson Consulting? I think it was Anderson Consulting. Do you remember the Enron scandal from several years ago? There was an energy company. There was fraud that was happening inside the business. And I remember reading about the situation and learning that all of the evidence of fraud was out there. It was, it was all out there. It was all available. The problem was there was so much information that it was a needle in a haystack. Mm -hmm. And I think with, with big data that there can be, I think there can be one challenge is I think there can just be so much information that it's just, it's, it's overwhelming. Right. And, and how do you know when you've reached some sort of stopping point with getting new information, if you, if you can have this constant flow of information, if, you, if it's an all you can eat buffet and you are a glutton, it's hard to get to the stopping point. And I can, I think, I think with information, that's a challenge that we run into. And then I think the second thing is there's a culture around buying research where it's, it's almost, a, it, it becomes about the report. And so the way that, the way that projects get scoped, the way that they get priced is all around the report and how much information is going to be in the report. It's not about 
what sort of results are we going to get as a result of this information that we're going to get. To some extent, that's healthy because you don't know if, if you're operating the realm of things that you don't know, then you don't know what the second step is going to be. I think the world very much needs people who are able to make that pivot between getting information and actually doing something with it. Uh, so it's a very highly valuable skill that is unfortunately extremely rare. I would think you see this in any domain. I would think you see this probably in talk therapy, or you probably see this in, I don't, I don't I don't know where you know. I don't know other places that we get information, but I think we're really good at producing information. We're really good at pivoting and saying, "Hey, we've got enough. Now it's time to go and do something with it." Mm-hmm. Lack yeah. of skill, too much information. Those those are my current understandings of why that problem exists. And then, can I also add? There's there's one other thing that I think I should that I should add to that. And sometimes information is completely irrelevant. So we have. One of the things that we do as a business is we offer, we call it off-platform research, off-platform customer research. And so a lot of times, if you're a business and you're trying to learn something, you go and you talk to your customers. But there can be times if, if what you're trying to do is something new, then going out and talking to the people who are currently your customers is not going to help mm-hmm. or it's going to be very limited. And so if you want to understand how do we how do we create some new customer behavior somewhere else? And you go and you're running surveys or you're studying the click behavior of current customers. It's like, that's not really information. That's there's data, but it's not really information that's helping you do what you need. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes just because we can measure things doesn't mean that it's going to actually help us. Mm -hmm. What about for the overwhelm? You know, I think of like higher ed and programs that are trying to figure out new program development or a small business who's trying to figure out how can we innovate and all they have are their customer base and how are we going to get access and afford to talk to to people outside of our customer base. And so time constraints, money constraints can always feel like a big hamper when it comes to doing research or gathering those customer insights. So what are your tips for those type of people who feel like this is, we know we need the market research, but we just can't get it. We can't afford it. We, how do they get past that hurdle or how do they need to rethink things to just force themselves past the hurdle? So I don't tend to work with very small businesses. So I can only probably give experience and I can only maybe tell you about how we do that. So as I mentioned, I'm starting my second business. I have a business partner and we have right now four clients. And so we were doing our strategic planning recently. And we're like, our strategic planning is next quarter because we are in survival mode, right? Like we're, we're, we're paying our salaries, but we're not doing much more than that. We need to continue paying our salaries. But at the same time, we're trying to do something new. And so we're thinking, how do we go out and get information that we need to understand? Are we trying to solve the right problems are we trying to, are we talking about our problems in the right way? So that's, that's where we are. And so the way that we're doing it is we don't, I don't, you know, I don't need, I don't need Bain to give me industry level insights. What I need to do is have conversations with people who look like the kind of people that I want to do business with. And so inside of our personal network, we've got, 
30 people. We've identified 30 people that over the next quarter, we're going to have a conversation with. There's this great article. I don't know if you do show notes, but there's this great article called Get in the Van by I think a guy named Michael Sippy. I can send you the link. And so this is what we're going, we're going to follow this process. We do, I mean, we do this type of work for our clients. So we're like, well, we should do this for ourselves. And so we're going to, over the next 90 days, just have 30 conversations with people. And I think the limiting factor in doing the type of market research that you're talking about if you're a small company is not getting access to the information. It's abstracting yourself away from what it is that you do Mm-hmm. far enough to be able to actually ask the questions that you need to get answers to. And so in these conversations, these will be hour-long conversations. And these are people that we know, so we don't have to pay them. They're willing to do it. Now, sometimes they're scheduling with us six weeks out to make that happen. But hour-long conversation, and the first 40 minutes of this conversation is, hey, we think you have problems one, two, three. Do you actually have those problems? Mm-hmm. And setting that up so that we're just simply trying to understand, you know, do you actually have these problems? What does this mean to you? How do you talk about it? How are you trying to solve it today? And so in that first 40 minutes, there will be zero discussion about Ponder and what we do. All of that 40 minutes is going to be about what they, what their situation is like, what they do, whether or not they have the problem, how they talk about it, who's involved in the problem what they're trying to do now to solve it. Then we'll take 10 minutes and we'll say, we're trying to, we're thinking about solving the problem in this way. And then at that point, what's happened is if they actually have the problem, all of their emotions around that problem have now come up to the surface. And so when we talk to them about what we're doing, they're able to immediately connect that back to some sort of need that they have, if they have that need. Mm-hmm. Because what I don't want to do is go out and talk to what, what you as you know as a as a as a constrained need you know person who needs this information. Um, you you don't want to I don't know you don't want to try to talk to people about solving a problem that they don't have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the process. And I would say that it it does take time. And we're going to have to like we may there may be a project that we have to say no to this quarter because we're we're going to prioritize that. And so like with everything, it's a it's a trade-off. These things can be very expensive in terms of our time. But if you can approach it as a conversation, people are usually willing to have a conversation, even if if in your network they're definitely willing to have a conversation outside of your network, you would be surprised how many people just with an email will agree to take a, a phone call because people like to help other people. So mm-hmm. Think you know to me it's you know thinking of it in terms of research as just having a conversation and doing it as a conversation that's very focused on the other person. That's the best way to get around it. And and one other thing I'll say, I've started to use Chat GPT for some of this. And I'll give you an example. So we started to find that in my last business, which is very similar to the one I do now, I'm just working with different people. We started to hear from brand marketing people. I was like, I don't know what brand marketing is. I've not, I've, I know, I kind of know what brand is. This is, this is your territory, right? And so I, I think I kind of know what it is, but I don't really. And so I started one afternoon, I, I actually got a glass of wine. I was here in my office. I got a glass of wine. It was like three o'clock on a Friday. And I just started having this, 
I, I said to Chappie GPT, I was like, I'm a brand marketer at a B2B software company. Write a set of OKRs for me in my first 90 days of my job. So ChatGPT as it, we start saying, well, okay, now, now add comments from a, the perspective of a CMO who is highly skeptical about the value of market research. And you can just start what ChatGPT, I couldn't tell you a single thing that ChatGPT told me in that conversation. But what it did for me is it really got my curiosity muscle going to really think about what is it that this new person is actually struggling with in their role. And so the my, my empathy muscle started firing, my curiosity muscle started firing, and it really helped me put together a sales deck that, that I needed to put together that was much more oriented around that person's challenges and, and what they were actually dealing with. Yeah. So you weren't using ChatGP as the end-all be-all, like omniscient advisor on <laughs> people are so much as I need a friend to sit here and help me with the right information, the right questions so that my human brain can start firing in creative ways. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What kinds of questions should I be asking here? Yep. Love that. Let me, I don't think pushback is the, is the phrase here, but you know, when you Ooh, talk about, this is going to be the best part of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about just go out and ask your customers what they want. A couple things come to mind. Two things. I can remember that same research company that I talked to you about uh-huh. the CEO telling me customers don't know what they want. So there's that mentality. We don't talk to customers because they don't know what they want. But then there's also making sure that you that you don't just take, making sure, I guess, that you, well, I don't want to lead you. So just making sure that you don't take what they say at face value. And so what I mean is I remember reading about Walmart. I don't remember how many years ago this was. Lots, probably in the 90s. And they did a study. They talked to their customers. What do you want? And based on what the customers told them, they they laid their store out in a completely different way. It was a costly, costly mistake, like in the millions or billions of dollars that it ended up costing Walmart because what they thought they wanted based on the, the customer's conversations actually wasn't quite accurate, which probably is what fuels the mentality of the CEO when he says customers don't know what they want. So flesh that out for me. Like I could say lots of things about it, but I want to hear, what do you say about that type of stuff? Like what, 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 what went wrong? That's a total tongue twister of a question right there. (laughs) 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 <laughs> what happens in that situation and how how do we move beyond just having a conversation into conversations that aren't going to lead us astray? I've never heard that story before. That is fascinating to hear. But I, but I have heard lots of stories like it. And I will just say as a customer myself, if I go to a restaurant, I don't want the chef to come out and ask me what sort of spices I like on my chicken. I don't want a car manufacturer to come and ask for my advice on how to design a door handle. I don't want the author of the book that I'm about to read to come and ask for my advice on how to, I think as product people and as service providers, we have to recognize that customers pay us to make decisions. I think I stole that from Steve Jobs. There's this great video where he talks about this type of this type of thing. And he says, 
people, people don't want, uh, like people don't want to design, like they don't want to do your work for you. They want you to do the work. And so there's this big difference, I think, between understanding the experiences that people want to have without asking them exactly how to go and deliver those experiences. And so number one, I think that it's doing your own work so that you have the ability to empathize with what it is that your customers like and what works for them. Like if you're selling a luxury automobile, one of the things that I hear people say when they talk about their automobile is the doors feel heavy. When I, when I open the door, like it feels like, you know, I can, I can feel it in my hand and it, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's solid because pushback or when I press on the pedals, like there's, there's a weight to it. And there are certain details that if we study the experiences that people have when they're using our products, we can start to, we can start to understand when someone talks about, I want my car to feel like luxury or premium there. That's a, that's a shortcut to certain things. We can't ask them, well, define what luxury is like. People don't, people, we don't think about the decisions that we make or the things that we experience. Like we just don't think about it on that, that level, but there are ways to study what it is that they like and to, and to get around that and really figure out what it is, what is it that delights people and then deliver on those types of promises. There's this great case study in jobs to be done, which is my area of interest having to do with the Snickers bar. And so Back before Snickers got exposed to jobs to be done, when they would advertise, they would talk about nougat and chocolate and the qualities of, of the product. But then they, they had to step back and they, they, they had this competitive need to beat Milky Way. It's like, well, how are we going to beat Milky Way? Like, are we going to use better peanuts? Are we going to use a different type of chocolate? Are we going to add 10% to it? I mean, you, know, you, can, you can really get caught up in a, in a mess trying to figure that out. And what they did is they stepped back and they said, what are the experiences that people are using our product for? And they realized we're not competing with Milky Way. We're competing with a fast food hamburger, an energy drink. And they real that's when they realized, you know, you're not you when you're hungry. People were going to Snickers when they were hungry. And, and so anyway, they, they were studying the experiences around it. So that's the first thing I think is really deeply empathizing with the experience that you as a service provider or a product person is creating. And then I think the second part of that is turning off the empathy and then figuring out how do I do this in some sort of a way that's going to appeal and be interesting and actually, you know, moving forward. And then from there, experimenting. And so we never get it right. We were always operating off of hunches and there comes this, there can be this overconfidence that says, okay, well, I listened and now I'm just going to go out and do. So customers want to be involved. There's, there's a way to co-design thing with customers, but it's gotta be, it, it's gotta be actually creating that real experience. When you were telling that story, it reminded me of new Coke. Mm. And do you know why new Coke failed? Mm-mm. It was because they were they did their research, right? They went out. They, Pepsi was doing these commercials, and it was a taste test, and people would sit and they'd take a sip of Pepsi and a sip of Coke, and they would pick Pepsi. So Coke's like, okay, well, what we need to do is we need to engineer something new where we can where we can start winning taste tests. Absolute wrong thing to do because what they found is new Coke won in taste tests, but that's not the way that people actually drink a Coke. People would buy a whole can of it. They would open it and they would drink the whole entire Coke. And people hated the experience of drinking an entire can of new Coke. Mm-hmm. 
And so that's the other thing is like really studying customer behavior in as close to a real situation as possible. So people don't buy based on a taste test. They buy based on drinking the whole can. And so it's then going back and studying and running experiments where, you know, are we creating the whole, are we actually reproducing the real experience that someone actually wants? Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe that that doesn't happen because that's the longer approach, right? Like the more human you try to get in your insights, the longer things take and the riskier it can feel because then you're you're making decisions based on inferences, human to human inferences versus, well, we made the decision on the data, therefore the data failed. I feel like there's some of that too. Like we had the numbers, like what else could we have done? We trusted the numbers. That feels safer than to look at mm-hmm. all of these transcripts, all of these conversations, all of these feelings and experiences that are being described and be like, that's data too. Like the, that's hard data. Somebody yesterday in a conversation described that to me as the soft, uh, she didn't say soft skills, but it was soft, like the soft deliverables. And in a further conversation offline with somebody else, I'm like, there's nothing soft about human data like that. That is hard stuff. Like I understand vernacularly why we call it soft, but there is nothing soft. And I think the more and more technical we get in society, the more and more AI takes over, probably those right. connections are going to become even more valuable. I have to, I have to think that. That's what well, I do too. That, that's where I'm placing my bets. Mm-hmm. I think you're making a great point there. And I do think there's, and when I think about the work that you do and, you know, storytelling specifically, like that's, that's really what we want. Like, I don't, I don't, care about a story that chat GPT tells me, but I care a lot about stories that you tell me or my kids tell me, or, you know, the real lived human experiences for sure. Right. I've read too here recently that, and maybe you've read about this as well, that like in this, in the social media world, in our online digital worlds, there is less and less interaction happening on the actual platform. People aren't commenting on posts. If you think about your own feeds, like you see less and less of your actual friends posting in the feed, like where did everybody's lives go? Well, where everybody's lives have gone is in the DMs and the private messages and the private communities. People are are leaving those public spaces to find the more intimate, small groups to have those those communities and those spaces there, which is fascinating that that's the shift that's happening. But I also think it speaks back to the importance of the work that you do, because if we just look at that kind of that public, those public data points that we can collect, well, then we're going to be missing out more and more on the true conversations that are happening to drive those data points. And so if we don't invest in that kind of research and those kind of insights, we're going to be continually misled. I think that's a great insight. And what it reminds me of is so ChatGPT is trained on public information. And so if you are in a position where you're going to need to compete with that, then your best way is to exactly what's what's information that the AI does not have access to and how can that be used to yeah, create create some sort of competitive advantage. Yeah. Now, one of the things you talked about is to be able to empathize with their experiences, but you also say sometimes empathy isn't a good thing. And so when when is it time to shut the empathy yeah. off? How do we know? Yeah, this is my whenever whenever someone 
Yes, it's unpopular. You know, what's an unpopular opinion that you have? This is one of the things that I've come to believe. So when is it time to turn off empathy? Well, as a, as a researcher, I did a project a few years ago with a company that sells a credit product. And it was, it was heartbreaking to hear some of the stories of people that they helped. So they were good at helping people in a very difficult spot get quick access to credit. So if we went out and talked to customers, there were a lot of situations where it was mom and dad, they were struggling. One or both of them was out of work. The electric company was starting to post red things on, on, on their door and their van breaks down. Now, like we've got, you know, we, we, we need some sort of help. And this company was able to, you know, provide them access to, to credit when, when they didn't have other choices. So when, when we hear stories like that, it, it really, you know, we, we, we connect with that emotion. But what I would find is we, we were doing research in a somewhat, there was a back room, right? And so we were having conversations with the customers and then there were 20 other people who were listening in on these, going through their own experience of, of empathizing customers. Well, the interview would end and we would then come back together as a group and we would say, okay, let's start to lay out, like, what did we hear? What's the, what's the data that we collected? And I heard from my business partner. So we're in the middle of these. My business partner's like, hey, can we take a time out for a second? I need to go talk to Eric. So we go out to the hallway and he says, you two times now have speculated on something about them. Like they didn't say that. And what you're speculating, you're, you're using your empathy to to see things that weren't actually shared. Now, the empathy was great then in the conversation because it helps ask follow-up questions and drive down into, into more detail and get those out. But if the conversation is over, the data has been collected, and if we continue to use our empathy, our empathy leads us to start to connect dots that, that aren't there to fill, to fill things in. We start to construct a narrative that's now based out of our own biases, assumptions, experiences, not based on that of the person. And so the time for empathy is during the conversation. Then once that's over, you got to turn the empathy off and just go back and look at the record and say, what did we actually get? And if you don't, then you are maybe well-intentioned, but you are starting to introduce falsehoods mm-hmm. into your data. And that's a big way that you can lose trust. And all that, when we talk about the politics of research at the beginning, that's a way that you can really erode your political capital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. A big foundation of my own approach is through phenomenological lens. And the whole the whole premise of that is you've got to bracket your biases. And so there are two camps of phenomenology, one that believes you can, the other that's like one that believes you just don't have it at all. You could just put your your biases aside and the other that's like, no, you're never going to put them aside, but you've you've got to at least bracket them to try to corral them in and acknowledge, okay, I see you over here, bias. I see you over here, empathy. But to your point, but you cannot use that lens to view the experience that you're trying to make sense of because correct, you taint it, you color it with your own ideas. And as a researcher who people are trusting and investing in you, to find those truths, you can't speak your own truth into it. And that's hard. Like, you know, to your point, you've got to shut it off. It's a constant awareness. It's a constant, probably 
questioning of yourself of, okay, is this really here or, or am I reading into this? Am I, am I infusing my own experience into it? Absolutely. Nothing to fix. What phenomenology is that what you set up? This is, yeah. I've not heard this term before. Yeah. Yep. It's just a, a methodology, a research lens. The modern day phenomenologist is Max Van Manen, somebody who you might research, like whose research you would see today. But it was a German philosopher. I think he was a mathematician, Husserl. I can't say it in the German German dialect. So he was the original and his student Heidegger came and he was the one, Heidegger was the one who was like, no, we, we have to bracket our stuff. We can't actually show up without any bias. Like that's impossible. We're human. We've got to bracket them. Oh, right. So I think, Interesting. I think knowing you, you'd probably, you'd probably really get into it. It's all about getting to the essence of the experience that's happening. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, you just sent me down a rabbit trail. So <laughs> thanks for torpedoing my afternoon. <laughs> oh, well, Eric, this has been great. I know you and I could just chat forever and ever. Where can people find you? They want to learn more about your work. They want to learn more about Ponder. Where can they, where should they get in touch with you at? So let's ponder it. Let's ponder.it is our website. It is really new, but it has a couple of pieces of information out there. I'm mainly on LinkedIn. So I think it's my LinkedIn profile is Eric Matthew White. Okay. But if they look you up and then look in your connections. And we'll put it all in show that's, notes. That's where I spend that. most of my time. Yeah. Well, thank great. you so much for joining us. It's been great. Always nice to chat with you, Lindsay. Thank you. As founder and CEO at Storyhouse 15, my vision is to build a world of people who have answered the call that's been uniquely placed upon their lives. So if you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. And if you're ready to grow and pivot with clarity and confidence, be sure to stop by and say hello at storyhouse15.com.